Welcome to a brand new season of The Brand is Female. I'm your host, Ava Hartling. To launch this new season with a bang, this week I'm in conversation with Sarah Penton, co-founder and CEO of Vitruvi, one of the largest aromatherapy brands today offering luxury essential oil blends and diffusers. With products in more than 300 stores across Canada, the US and Australia, the first essential oil brand to be stocked by retail giants Nordstrom and Sephora, as well as with partnerships with Goop and Air Canada. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship programs. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Sarah's background in health, her travels around the world, and her fascination for how traditional botanicals can be used in modern ways were the foundation for what has become the number one aromatherapy brand in the country, which she launched in Vancouver with her brother Sean while still attending med school, starting out with just a website on essential oils, which grew into a thriving business amidst the ever-expanding wellness segment. Sarah's true passion is helping women transform the simple moments of their days into experiences that elevate their well-being. Her hope is always the same, to help women take better care of themselves so they can take on the world. Something she knows a thing or two about herself, having raised financing of up to $7 million for Vitruvi. Here is my conversation with Sarah Penton. Sarah, welcome to The Brain is Female. I'm so glad we could speak today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I can't wait to get into how you started your business, what you're doing with your business. But before we get to that, I like to uh, start this conversation by going back in time. So I'm curious to know, as a young girl, what kind of career were you envisioning for yourself in the future? And was it at all connected to what you're actually doing today? Were you thinking you'd own your own business one day or was it something completely different? That is a great question. I grew up in a really small town. So I did not grow up around entrepreneurs. I did not grow up Mm. around business. My mom was a teacher and my dad was a police officer. And so I really grew up around nine to five stable jobs. And um, I kind of went through the whole gamut of like wanting to be a marine biologist and loving (laughs) nature. At one point, I was obsessed with Jane Goodall and um, had a Jane Goodall birthday party. So I was like always really into nature. I was into, I was a little bit like offbeat probably. I was a little hippie kid. Um, and didn't, um, actually even learn about entrepreneurship until mm-hmm. my late teens, early twenties when I was working for a nonprofit and started mm-hmm. managing sort of high net worth individuals and families. And that's when I learned, Hey, you can run your own business. So it was very late. And was it something that was appealing to you at that time? Because you, I, I, I read that, you know, your studies were not kind of setting you up to be, uh, to be an entrepreneur. You were going in a different direction, but w- did it have an appeal at the time? I like making things. I think mm-hmm. if you were to look at the thread throughout my life, I like making things out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And so whether that is art or a project or something. And I'm a highly competitive person. So even if, you know, the business started as a blog, it started as a Tumblr account. And um, I'm just always kind of fascinated by what the potential of something is. So mm-hmm. I think it just sort of compounded. And a bit on paper, I am the least qualified person to uh, run or start a, a company. 
<laughs> well, I, I mean, I think you've proven that you are very uh, qualified at it. Uh, but you went to school, I believe, studying medicine. So mm-hmm. um, that was the plan to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. I was really passionate about women's health. I was really interested in natural living. It was kind of around the time that the green beauty movement was starting. And I was, I was lucky that my mom was sort of an early adopter of that. So it was like, we were using natural makeup before it was cool. And there weren't brands like Ilya, you know, and like the, the fun, interesting ones, it was like makeup from the health food store, like lip gloss that didn't even melt. Yeah. in like some sort of cardboard container. So I, you know, I'm grateful to her for sort of spearheading that movement. And that sort of compounded my interest in non-toxic and natural products. I had gone through my own health concerns as a young girl at age 13 and 14, when you go through a lot of hormonal changes and Mm. learn at an early age, um, what endocrine disruptors are Mm. and the importance of, you know, knowing about your personal care and knowing what fragrance does. And so I kind of became hyper aware because of my own health issues and that just kind of, kind of compounded. So I went in to study medicine. I wanted to go into women's health. I worked abroad. I was, you know, opening up safe birthing centers in Kenya and learning about access to care. So I've always Mm -hmm. been interested in access Mm -hmm. and, and that just kind of compounded to what Vitruvia is today. And you've just mentioned it started as a tumbler, a good old tumbler. And what what made you realize that it could be more than you know just a blog? And I, I believe you started the, the tumbler with your brother, who became your business partner. So mm-hmm. when when was that shift of okay, we can actually try to make a company out of this? It was probably a year and a half, two years in, and we were creating a lot of content and proprietary content. A lot of it was interviews like this, learning about people's lifestyles and natural choices they were making. But then I really realized that I had made a lot of kind of better for you choices in areas of my life, like feminine care and shampoo and personal care deodorant. But the home scenting industry was still run by companies that were using phthalates and synthetic fragrance and that I used to buy a candle every month as like my study kind of um, motivation. Like each month I would buy like a new candle to study with. And then I realized I was making all these choices, but then lighting synthetic fragrance on fire and breathing in in a small confined apartment. So that was like the light bulb moment for me. Hey, I can, I can make a better alternative to this. And did you do any sort of, you know, market research, testing None. with customers? No, nothing. You just jumped right no, in? No, no. We did not, nothing of that. There was, I've actually found a really old business business plan from like 2016, but it was, it was making products that I could use, that my friends could use, pricing right. it in a way that felt affordable. I mean, yeah, I would go back and change a lot, but there was, um, there was no business case there. Mm. Yeah. What was, what was the first product? Was it a diffuser right away? The first product was essential oils. The first product was the oils because we really wanted to solve first for taking the synthetic fragrance out of home scenting. So with that, we used it in personal products and in products you could roll on your skin or kind of have sitting in a room. There was a lot of DIY type work to make your own natural products. And then the diffusers came uh, probably like eight months later. Hmm. And what was, what was that like trying to, you know, sell, introduce that, that first product, a diffuser eventually, and how did you manage growth? Was it, you know, reinvesting whatever sales were coming in into the business or uh, did you, did you resort to financing early on? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'd, 
other people you interview might have a similar experience, but you really, it's really hard to get financing out of the gate. If you don't have experience, if you didn't go to school, uh, you didn't work at any cool companies. And so I'm grateful for that in the sense of it was really challenging at the time, but it set us up to manage cash pretty conservatively. Right. And so the business was really built with mom and pop shops mm-hmm. that paid before we shipped small mm-hmm. sort of incremental orders of And I remember I just had a list of like what we needed to sell to cover like our little home office business expenses. And I needed like eight opening orders of $300. And so it just built from there. Um, And I think it makes you really fiscally responsible and it makes you think about mistakes because you can't afford them. (laughs) <laughs> and when you're using your own, you know, credit card and student loans and cash management in that tight of, of constraints, it, it helps you, it helps you ask really hard questions early that I know mm-hmm. other friends and founders that have raised a ton of capital. You don't, you don't hear the same noise as quickly as you do and you don't yeah. get as curious with your customers. So it's a yeah. good constraint. It's a frustrating constraint, but it, I think it ends up. It pays off in Setting end. you up better. Yeah. 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 And so when was, I'm assuming there was a moment in there where you realized, okay, this is going to be a viable business. What was that first aha moment of, okay, this business is actually going to take off? I think when we started getting um, retail orders from larger accounts, mm-hmm. uh, so like Holt Renfrew in Canada, um, Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, And at that point, Sean and I were still hand labeling our products, which was probably not to code. Like Nordstrom definitely got ship product that I had labeled while watching (laughs) Anthony Bourdain reruns. So like we really, we really faked it for as long as we could until we physically couldn't make the product to to fill the orders. And again, that's a good growth constraint. Mm. What was one of the larger, you know, bigger obstacles, challenges that you face in, in the first few years of being in business? And, you know, there was all that excitement orders coming in. Was there a point where you said, okay, you know, am I, are, are we making the right decision here of continuing to operate this business? I mean, as an entrepreneur every day, not to be cliche, <laughs> has its own set of challenges. Um, yeah. It's really hard to get capital. It's really mm-hmm. hard to get capital to scale. It's hard to get reasonably priced capital to scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that would have been one of the biggest constraints, not being able to get a loan, you know, not being mm-hmm. able to talk to a bank and, and trying to figure out the best way to fund growth in a way that wasn't punitive to Sean and I. And at the time right. we just didn't even know. So I would, I would definitely make different decisions if I could go back in time, but you kind of just have to deal with the, the options you have in front of you. And what's your approach when you encounter, you know, an obstacle, something tough, some, you know, something that's challenging your way of doing things. What's, how do you typically approach those, you know, kinds of wrenches thrown your way? Yeah. You'd you'd have to ask my team or my husband, but I think (laughs) I know, no, I, I actually can't answer this. I get really, really quiet. So I get very, I think every day something goes wrong. And I mm-hmm. think the more successful you get, uh, the more you only hear about the bad stuff. Yeah. So I think kind of normalizing that you're there to solve problems is really important. And to just know that's part of the job. And it doesn't mean that you're failing, but it means like there's people filtering things up to you. Mm-hmm. And so I just get really, really still. And I look at things pretty objectively and maybe 
in a cold manner and I'm solutions oriented. I think if I were to pick another career, I'd be a conflict mediator or someone that like, I like sort of pulling all the noise away, figuring out what the actual problem is. I usually kind of give it a little bit of time so that any energy or emotion kind of sloughs off and then just kind of figure out what, what the end needs to look like. And I love that Stephen Covey kind of mind state of begin Mm -hmm. with the end in mind before we go to fix the problem, say, okay, what's our desired end state and what's the mm-hmm. easiest, most simple path and um, how do we get there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Easier said than done, especially exactly. when you're working with humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, it's a good, good approach to keep us uh, in check. Um, I read somewhere that, you know, you, you talked about the fear you felt when you, you know, kind of paused medical school and, and, you know, decided to run, uh, to, to turn a Tumblr to an actual business and, and, you know, jump, jump into the air. Um, and you've said that you still feel this fear every day. So what is fear to you? And is that fear still present? Yeah. So I'll clarify the first point. So Mm -hmm. I actually don't believe in quitting your job and jumping all in to start a business. And I've been Mm -hmm. I think really clear about that. When I stepped down from school, I actually went on a one-year leave. So I did not quit. I had one year to prove the concept. And the company, I didn't pull a salary from until many years later. So on top of that, I had three other jobs that I did that were remote jobs. I was managing Mm. an Instagram account for a dog company in Australia. I was working for a wearable tech company in London and I was working in like three different time zones that would allow me to work on the business during Pacific standard time where I was based in in Canada. And so I knew I wanted the business and the decisions I made not to be confused with decisions I needed to be able to pay my rent. Mm -hmm. And my, my thinking is, and for people that are, you know, I have, I have friends of mine that are, you know, have full-time jobs and have something that they like doing. It's, if you can't and you don't want to do this after doing one or two other jobs and your business, don't do it because mm-hmm. it will be like that. There will, you will always have, you know, other things on weekends or evenings that you're going to have to do. And so if you don't have the capacity now at the very beginning when your motivation is highest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're probably not passionate enough about it. That's very good advice. Mm-hmm. So back to the fear. Yeah. Is it still present? Of course. I think, I mean, who, if you're not, uh, if you're not fearful, if you're not aware, then you're not growing fast enough. You're not trying mm-hmm. new things and you're not innovating, then your business is probably dead. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And how, if, you know, on, in those moments where you might be tempted to have self-doubt or you're kind of having, you know, that we often resort to negative self-talk when we're, you know, facing something that's a little challenging. How do you try to get to the other side? I think if you've been through enough adversity where you realize that other people in the room, that while they may seem to have more experience or to be more confident or more assured, if you're the founder of your business or if you're the CEO of your business, at the end of the day, you're going to be stuck with whatever problem happens, Mm -hmm. even if someone gives you the best advice and you do that enough times, I think you build up a tolerance for the self-doubt because you know that you've worked through it in the past and you will. And so I think it just comes from experience mm. of self-assurance and just an acknowledgement that not everyone has a better answer than you. And even if they have more experience on paper, it you're, you're the one that's going to be going to be sitting with it. 
Mm, yeah, it has. It's it, the answer is usually there, right? We we have to pay attention. And um, how do you view leadership? And you work with a team. You know, you have a, a network of suppliers, partners. How do you approach your role as you know the leader at the helm of the company? Yeah, and I mean, the last few years of business have been very challenging. So it has mm. not been a fun time to run a company. I would, I will say that. And I have many friends that, uh, that run businesses that would say the same, but to me, leadership, um, is responsibility mm-hmm. and that responsibility needs to be deeply felt. And it's a responsibility to the overall mission, the success of the company, the shareholders you have and the team that you lead. And sometimes those things aren't aligned and it's really easy to lead when things are great and everyone's winning, um, and everyone's kind of moving in the same direction, but it's leadership is the ability to hold two conflicting dualities and do the right thing, uh, even if it doesn't please everyone and it's mm-hmm. not a popular opinion, but being self-assured and solid enough in who you are as a person, um, to know that you're making the right choice. Mm. And as a kind of follow up to that question, what kind of culture are you trying to cultivate, you know, for, for the brand? You have a brand that is very powerful. You're, you know, in a very operating in a very specific area. What kind of culture do you try to, uh, you know, kind of bring in and uh, uh, impart on, you know, the team internally and uh, also reflecting externally uh, to your, to your customers? What would be, uh, what are things that you're considering when you're thinking of building culture? Yeah, I think culture starts and people have different views on this, but with leadership. So mm-hmm. you can't create a culture that's disingenuous to the CEO or um, right. to the to the leader that's leading it, because ultimately your fingerprints are on everything because you built it from scratch and you're also mm-hmm. the one leading it. So it needs to be authentic to who you are as a leader. And I think areas where that shows up for me is like a quiet confidence and uh, idea of quality and less is better. Um, we've never been like a kumbaya, like rah, rah, you know, it, culture internally. And I think that has to do with sort of the sophistication and the quality that we take really seriously in our products. We work that way as well. Um, we make products that are built to last a lifetime and that are mm-hmm. an investment for people. And we take that seriously. And, and so I would say the, you know, the themes are really quality and ownership and a beginner's mind, right? Mm-hmm. I've started this from nothing and a, a lot of our team, has been with us for six years, five years, and they came from very early on in their career. So it's a, it's definitely a culture of enabling leadership and mm. thought leadership, um, and excellence. Mm, love that. How do you measure and actually how do you define success and how do you measure success? And has that changed over the years for you from when you first started a business to today? Do you mean business success or personal success or? It can be both. (laughs) Oh gosh. Well, I mean, if we were to talk about the market, I think how companies are valued have changed a lot, even Mm. in the last two years, right? We went from like a grow at all costs, raise a bunch of capital, you know, sell out on multiple of like top line revenue growth to Mm. like EBITDA and profitability. And so that's been a really interesting market change to lead a company through. Um, especially in the consumer space. So just the metrics of what a successful company, the the structure and the mechanics of it have changed a lot. Right. Um, but to me, it's just an integrity piece, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are we building a great quality product within 
the best constraints that we have? Mm-hmm. Um, or am I leading with integrity, even if that, you know, is tough sometimes? Um, and um, are we building a place where people feel like they can do their best work and, mm-hmm. um, and stretch their own potential? And do you take stock of these things on a regular basis? Is it a practice that you've put in place for yourself on a maybe quarterly or, you know, semi-annually basis? The, the business ones, yes, every week. <laughs> yeah. Right. The culture, business, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and the culture ones, when you've run a business, I mean, it's been nine years. So it gets pretty ingrained in you and culture shifts mm-hmm. during different periods, right? The way we brought the team together and the peak parts of COVID are very different than how we connect now. And it was different right. than when we had four people. Mm-hmm. So it needs to shift and meld and it needs to be authentic to the macro environment where employees are at and um, kind of in, in response to that. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women and Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way, so we can all share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. Going back to, you know, you brought up that one of, one of the main obstacles has been securing financing. And, you know, as a, as a startup, if you don't have a track record, it's very hard. Do you find that, and I'm, I'm guessing what the answer is going to be based on what you've already brought up, do you find that there's enough support for women entrepreneurs? And, you know, you're based in Canada, you sell to the U.S. as well. We can look at this from a, a North American standpoint. But if we think of Canada specifically, um, you know, is, is there enough support? Is it possible to, uh, to build successful businesses as women? I think there's still a lot of roadblocks for women to get access to, like, material capital. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of sort of like, I'll call it fluffy access yeah. to capital. There's yeah. like cute grants and things yeah, that people the, the 5K do. Grant. The 5K grant and 20K. And like, I stopped going to those events and galas because I'm like, if this chick's going to build a meaningful business, she's going to rip through 5K in like four days. That's not like, even payroll. It's for like not weeks, even right? payroll. So I hope you feel great about yourself. But yeah. like, I really think that we need more women writing checks because to me, that means they're able to empathize in a certain way or understand a market in a different way. Mm -hmm. I totally snapped at a banker two days ago because I just am so sick of having someone reference my business to Dollar Shave Club. Like Mm -hmm. the amount of men that have got on a call with me and said, so the diffuser is the razor and the oils are the razor blades. And I go, <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a subscription model. They don't buy the same product every month. My customer shops like nail polishes, like she has her favorites and then chooses different seasonal ones. So I think that's just like a really crisp example mm-hmm. of the, to, of no fault to them. They just don't yeah. interact with the product to mm-hmm. be able to empathize and then say, oh, I think my wife has your product. And it's like, great, get her on the call. Like mm-hmm. let's, let's chat. And so I've been really fortunate to have my series a led by 
uh, Harbinger Ventures who invest in women businesses and do write meaningful checks and enough money and expertise to grow and scale a business. And so, you know, something I'd love to look at later in my career is helping shepherd mm. um, some of that capital into the right places so we can see more women grow more robust businesses than you mm. can build with 5k. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those uh, grants always make me smile yeah. um, and and not, not for the right reasons. I think one thing that comes up as well is, you know, the notion of uh, mentor versus sponsor, right? And the way I typically phrase that is you can have wonderful mentors where, you know, men, women, it doesn't really matter. And, you know, they can share wonderful insights and advice, but you need those sponsors who are going to open doors that you don't have access to, right? And mm-hmm. these are not always women. So in your experience, you know, how how do you find these sponsors? How do you find these allies? And, you know, do you have any in your in your support system? Yeah, I think that is a really refreshing perspective because oftentimes I get invited to podcasts or speaking engagements and I am identified as a woman and the majority of the audience are women. And Mm -hmm. I often wonder, are we speaking circularly? Are we just sort of speaking to each other? And to me, we do need to bolster women entrepreneurs specifically until there's more equity at yeah. a, a board level, at you know, women running Fortune 500 companies, and so I was fortunate to have a mentor of mine early, my very first mentor, who was a man and ran a very large company, Best Buy, and it was important for me to have him as someone that had been on the other side of the table and could, mm-hmm. you know, bring me up in understanding mm-hmm. the dynamic and, and that, and so. I think as women, it's important to relate to each other and the access to capital is important, but we also need to include men in the conversation because a lot of those seats are currently filled by them. And so I think if we want to really facilitate meaningful change in representation, a lot of those decisions are made by people that we don't maybe speak to right yeah. now. You're 100% right. I agree with you entirely. And I think it's it's not it's not a contradiction to want to support women specifically and, you know, uh, support women entrepreneurs specifically, but we, you know, we need allies and it doesn't mean that by working with a, you know, a male partner, a male sponsor, a male coach, whatever the, the part of the, you know, the type of relationship it, you know, we need everybody to be in our corner and opening doors for us. And as you just said, the reality is, you know, senior roles and leadership roles are still occupied by more men than women. And Mm -hmm. there's a ton of men who are supporting women. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in our best advantage to work all together. Mm -hmm. And to make those conversations um, collaborative and open and that we can learn from them and they can learn from us and exactly. And, and how leadership maybe made change with that yeah. shift and as that, well. Exactly. That's how, that's exactly how change is going to happen. I think if we're having a conversation among women entrepreneurs, there should be men invited at a table and listening mm-hmm. and they might, you know, they might learn a thing or two. Uh, and then it's, it's just, you know, way more constructive in that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. What has been the dream and, you know, what's kind of that big hairy goal that, you know, the, 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 the ultimate destination that you aspire to with your brand today? My, my biggest dream has always been to build a household name that creates better for you, beautiful quality products in homes Mm. across North America. 
And we've been able to do that in certain sectors um, and certain demographics and regions within the U.S. and Canada. But as we look at our innovation and our pipeline that's starting to come out, we're able to offer different price points and different Mm -hmm. access uh, that will, I think, allow every home to have a Vitruvi experience uh, within the household. And that, that's always been my goal is to create something at scale, to create something that can fit in every home. And then just to add more delight in people's lives, like Mm. those simple moments that you can just invest in yourself and spray something in your space or put a diffuser on and command a room and set the tone. And, and, you know, maybe that helps you show up a little bit better for, for yourself and your friends and family. Well, it sounds like that vision is very clear and you're executing right against it. So that's, uh, that's, that's great to see. Um, you're one of those companies, you know, you're from Canada based uh, on the West Coast of Canada. And it seems like early on your product, you know, uh, was picked up by U.S. retailers. Was it difficult getting your concept to be, you know, believed in uh, by American retailers or Amer- American distributors? And do you think this is something, again, that, you know, Canadian entrepreneurs have access to? Because it seems often entrepreneurs are able to build a local market for their product if they're from Canada, and then getting it across the border is always a challenge. Yeah, that's a good question. So Sean and I, from the beginning, didn't care about Canada. So Mm. we we strategically didn't participate in um, sort of like market fair or local makers. Like we always just pretended we were bigger. And so we only cared about the U S our outreach was only U S our distribution centers were only in the U S we built a U.S. based company. We also Mm -hmm. knew the access to capital in Canada is very different than the U S the risk tolerance is very different. And even if I were to go back, I would have, we have a U.S. entity, but our Canadian base, there's so many more financial tools to use in the U S so I think it's just something that I share with early entrepreneurs, like really mm-hmm. think about the business and the skill you want to build because the tools and access you'll have available that you might not need until four years from now are are more likely in the U.S. And so our thought was, if we can prove it to Americans, maybe Canadians will like it yeah. too. Yeah, instead <laughs> of trying to do the opposite. Yeah. Well, and that's often how when you do make it in, you know, a market abroad, usually you gain kind of credibility a lot faster with, you know, your own local market. It's yeah. If, yeah. If you can woo a New Yorker, you can probably <laughs> woo someone from Winnipeg. So, yeah. <laughs> well said. Different, different demographics, but um, yeah. But, you know, taking local learnings, obviously, the, the whole mm-hmm. way. I think our first customers were all our mom's friends. So mm-hmm. they're pretty mm-hmm. discerning, too. So we were able to make it uh, through that on Vancouver Island first. Right. And, and you wooed Goop early on as well. Yeah. It seems like when she gave her, you know, seal of approval, uh, that must have open, opened a lot of doors for you. Yeah, absolutely. We've worked with the Goop team and they've become, I live in Los Angeles now, they've become close friends and it was great to be able to build a product with Gwyneth and their team early on and really show, you know, what the brand was about in the platform. I think we both co-currently believed in a lot of the, the same things early on. Mm. And when you came out with the brand and the product, as you said, it was still early on, you know, in, in green beauty, it seems like over the past few years, uh, beauty, green, you know, I'll talk about wellness and beauty in, in general, uh, it's really exploded as a category. How do you make sure you stay, you know, relevant, still have a unique brand and product positioning, um, 
And how are you planning the next few years of growth based on, you know, the category being a lot more saturated today? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a really great question. We detoured a little bit, to be honest, we detoured into skincare a little bit. We dabbled Mm -hmm. in, in home, uh, like home cleaning a little bit, and then really realized that there was companies that were really commanding this. And one mantra I kind of like to think about is what can you be best in the world at? And so we really pulled back and said, our root is air care. Our root is the home. Our root is, you know, being able to command the air and in, in a space. And that's what we decided to narrow in on. So say there's probably like a year and a half, two years there where we kind of felt like we could do everything, but then pulled back and said, let's, let's own one thing. So by owning air, by owning uh, clean, you know, scenting, by owning, we launched a humidifier, there's new innovation coming out. We've been able to create our own sort of system in a home that has one, a little bit less competition, but also is just like a little more street cred of what we're known for. So trying mm-hmm. not to do too much at the same time has been a good lesson for me. It's expensive and, too. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. Well, it's interesting too how sometimes you kind of have to go through the motions to come back to, you know, what makes oh, yeah. the most sense and what's going to be really the the main building block for, for your company. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like tell new entrepreneurs, I'm like, send me a text before you make a big choice. Cause I've probably made all the wrong choices. <laughs> I probably made most of the mistakes you could make. So let me, you know, text me first and then maybe I'll save you one. And that's invaluable, right? Learning from mistakes is really the best form of learning. Yeah. Um, as a CEO, what's your favorite thing to do out of the, I'm sure million things you do in a week. What are some of your favorite tasks when, you know, you're going to the office or working from your home office, wherever, what are, what are your favorite things to do? My favorite, oh, I have to do a lot of things I don't enjoy doing. That was so I be try to, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. 98% of the day now is things that aren't, aren't mm. fun that aren't, mm-hmm. you know, what I thought it would have been six years ago. But my, my most favorite is, um, speaking to our customers. So mm-hmm. I do monthly calls with our customers where we take a different section. Maybe it's some of our top performing customers. Maybe it's people that have, have only ordered from us once. And I choose sort of a theme each month and then get on between four to seven calls, um, with them and just ask a ton of questions. Where did you discover us? What do you wish we had? What do you think we could do differently? What was a pain point? And, and um, our customers are just very thoughtful. And um, so I, I love those moments. Um, and I love seeing, I'm a creative person. So I love getting to see future marketing campaigns or strategy of how we're able to mm. speak to our customer, inspire them yeah. in different ways. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's your least favorite thing to do? Oh, most of the day. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> most of the day. Yeah. It's a lot of, um, it's a lot of tracking sales. It's a lot of budgets. It's a lot of understanding spend and the nuances of different industries. I mean, it was on like a two hour call this morning, uh, whittling down our Amazon contribution margin, like things mm. that are very, very technical and small. And you just have to have confidence in yourself that you're a smart person and you can make good decisions and be discerning and ask a lot of questions. And, um, I am definitely not an Amazon expert, but it's my job to, to ask the questions and and educate myself. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's always, there's always something new to have to learn. To learn. Yeah. And you have yeah. to wear basically. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. um, I was t- talking to someone about this recently where it's like as CEO, your job description changes every 90 days mm-hmm. and no one tells you, but yeah. you're immediately held to a new standard of excellence, of mm-hmm. understanding of of, um, like comp comp of like comprehension of 
the way the business has evolved or the way the economy has evolved. And I think normalizing that earlier on in your leadership is important mm-hmm. and that no one is going to come to you and be like, this is what success looks like now. It's just always moving. And as soon as you feel like you maybe have a grasp on it, it'll absolutely change in what the business will need. Mm-hmm. So just also normalizing, like you're always failing. You never know enough. You're never caught up. Um, yeah. Cause you'll never feel that way. Yeah. It's a constant exercise in resilience, flexibility, adaptability, all of yeah. those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And amidst all that, how do you, how do you stay grounded? How do you, and I hate using the term work-life balance. I think there's yeah. a myth that's been sold to women, but um, how do you ensure, you know, you can maintain your, your sanity, your mental health and be the best version of yourself as a, as a leader for the company, but also as, as the, as a human, as a person. Yeah. I think it's important to be really thoughtful. And there's been moments where all of this has gone out the window and then I pay for it later. Um, but if you're kind of in it for the long haul, I think it's important to prime yourself and have tools. So I often speak to groups and people that are thinking of starting a business. And like, if you don't have a therapist or a counselor right now, absolutely get them <laughs> really. And yeah. if you want to start a business or be any sort of leader, you need to make a very, very real commitment to personal development. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. need to really, really get it. Because mm-hmm. as soon as you assume that role every day is like a mirror in the face yeah. of everything you haven't wanted to deal with, of all your insecurities of, and you're just mm-hmm. faced with it, especially when things get real. And so having that stability over the last few years, I think has allowed me to one, take every piece of adversity and become stronger for it. Mm-hmm. And um, also just prime my day. So like really specific tools, I got really interested in stoicism a few years ago. Mm. So I have, I have a book on my desk. This is it. This is Ryan Holiday's The Daily Stoic. Yeah. I uh, I love following their account on Instagram. Right. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I have this book and every day before I open up my inbox, I read The Daily Stoic for the day. Um, I really believe in his books, uh, Discipline is Destiny and a few of the, the other ones that he's written. And so having some sort of philosophy and tools and a vocabulary to help through adversity and a reminder that people have been through much worse and you can do it. And at the end of the day, it's all just problem solving. And I think that's the one, you know, kind of best kept secret that first time entrepreneurs don't know about is how much of your personal development is going to be linked to your business path. Nobody warns you about that and nobody tells you what tools you need. Mm -hmm. So like almost for the first two years, take every business book where you're about to pick up and choose like a self-help book instead. Because that's yeah, good like advice. really what you're going to need. You'll need that more. You'll yeah. need that more. Yeah. I mean, the hard things, the hard thing about hard things is a good one um, mm-hmm. because it kind of weaves both. But other than that, uh, none of those growth strategy books are going to help you when you're really dealing with the the crux of Their it. own issues. Yeah. yeah. Um, and kind of linking to that, what kind of support system did you develop for yourself? What, you know, what does your community that, you know, supports you on a weekly, monthly basis? What does that look like? Those trusted advisors and champions around you? Yeah. I mean, we have a board when we're grateful to have a really supportive board. I'm grateful that I have a co-founder. It can mm-hmm. be a really, really lonely experience, especially when it's really scary because mm-hmm. it will be right. Like you've devoted your life to this and things come up and issues happen that you can't even believe. So having someone that you really, really trust as, as a confidant and then, um, I think you really set the tone for the community you build. And there are opportunities 
in entrepreneurship to have, you know, groups that you can be a part of, et cetera. But in my experience, people hold their cards pretty close to their chest because there's a lot of insecurity and it's scary and, and you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, and so, mm, so much I, of that, so much of that. And like, people kind of like share like cute problems, like <laughs> not like, like <laughs> socially appropriate, like, Oh, I'm like, having trouble scaling beyond this. And it's like, Oh, tough. Like, but yeah, no, I like, I just cashed in my RRSPs to make payroll in two weeks. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like that's the shit that's really happening. And so I have found, I don't like small talk and like, I'm not here to just like fluff up people's egos. So I kind of just took the stance where it's like, okay, I'll flip my cards first. And this is what I'm dealing with. And if you don't want to have a conversation about that, then like, you're not my people. And so mm-hmm. I think by kind of making the first move and knowing who to do that with, right. But being more vulnerable and saying, Hey, I actually am looking for expertise or help and I don't have it figured out and mm-hmm. has allowed me to create a really beautiful curation of, of people around me that I can be real with and actually get feedback yeah. from. Yeah. That's a good filter to use. It's to a good filter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Flip a card. And if someone's not there, yeah. like bring your cards back and find someone else. Yeah. And that's true with friends as well. That's, that's a good so test true. for everyone in yeah. your life. Basically. Absolutely. Yeah. So being okay to make the first, uh, the first mm-hmm. move there. What's the next big thing that you're working on? We kind of talked about, you know, the dream and what you're really going after in terms of the brand overall, but what's on your vision board for the next six to 12 months? Vision board. Um, for, for like for the business, what we're for building business, towards yeah. for, yeah. So we have some really neat innovation that we've built that will one address a new price, um, but also a, new, okay. a little bit of a new category. Um, so that part I'm really excited about. We've that has been through conversations with our customers for the last probably two years. And so that's coming out um, in the next sort of six months. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. And in closing, I mean, you've shared wonderful insights, but if you had to summarize things, you know, three pieces of advice that you'd give in a conversation with somebody who is considering starting their, their business or somebody who's in the first few years of their business, what are three things you'd like them to know? Ooh, distill it down to three. Uh, the commitment to personal growth. So mm-hmm. get a therapist, <laughs> get, get, you know, put, get a framework for how you want to deal with adversity Mm -hmm. and a framework for how you take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say get an authentic group of people around you know, know who you want praise from. Mm -hmm. Um, but Mm -hmm. also acknowledge the human propensity to want praise because the arc of a business, you will get praise really early on from people Mm -hmm. that are close to you. Like you're killing it. You're doing great, sweetie. Like all that, all that stuff. Then you'll get a bunch of praise if you raise capital. And then very quickly, it will shift. Well, first, you'll get a lot of no's when you're raising capital. And everyone right. will say that it won't work. And that's right. really tough. That can and make you really, really tough. That question can the whole thing. totally shut you down. So you're yeah. going to have an arc. Then you're going to have everyone thinking against you. Then if you raise that, your job will go from growing to then just every problem that's going to happen. Like right. your board will only talk to you about why you're not doing this and what yeah. the potential is this and how is this being Alex? So acknowledge like having a framework for understanding your, like your craving for praise as a human being and how you can balance that. Um, and then lastly, I think just a, a larger mission because mm-hmm. it's going to get really, really tough. Mm-hmm. So yeah. beyond a scale and what story you want to be in and all mm-hmm. of this, like get really clear on 
on what, that North star, right? On why, yeah. right? Yeah. For you. Mm-hmm. Well, that was incredible advice. Um, I think women who listen to us will find it extremely men helpful. Too. Hopefully men and, listen to and this men as too. Well. We, we have more women listeners, but yeah. men do listen. And, you know, we have, we have amazing uh, uh, entrepreneurs sharing your journey, just like you. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so grateful that you were able to speak with me today. Uh, it was great hearing about your journey. And I'm really excited to see what's next for Vitruvi in the future. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for your thoughtful questions. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening today. If you did enjoy the show, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Yeah.